Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring sermons drawn from our pastoral staff and various guest preachers. On this President's Day weekend, our scripture comes directly from the center of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Listen to these teachings of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we begin to emerge from our pandemic exile, I have been nurtured by the sermons of Jessica von Lohr, by the challenge she has given to all of us. Her theme is back to the future. In her sermons, she suggested that rather than being occupied with the past, God calls us forward to be part of creating the future. Whether we worship in person or online, All eyes are focused this day on what might happen in Ukraine. David Brooks, in his remarkable column in the New York Times on Friday, talked about the 21st century, sadly, as the rise of the strongman, no one more so than Vladimir Putin. And yet, perhaps on this particular President's Day, this is a remarkable opportunity to find a contrast, to find a leader, Abraham Lincoln, who is not the strongman but who represents the best of American democracy. So in that sense, I want us to look together at the second inaugural address. If you're in the sanctuary, I suggest that you take this in your hand. If you're able online to print it out, if not now, to take it out and read it this afternoon. People in the 19th century all read out loud. They wouldn't have known what we do, what we read it silently. So I suggest we read it out loud to catch its full meaning. Let's set the scene. It's March 4, 1865. The title of the sermon is not my title. It actually was the words of a correspondent the next day who said, this was Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. 25 to 35,000 people gathered on a dark, windy, rainy, muddy day. 750,000 had died in the Civil War in a tiny nation of but 31 million. We've suffered over 4,000 deaths in Iraq. If you conflate that to a nation of 332 million, it would be like 8 million people had died in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Now, Lincoln was also faced with what seems to be happening all the time. We look back to an idealized past. Putin is looking back to an idealized Soviet Union. In Lincoln's day, it was called the nation as it was. The nation as it was. His opponents wanted to turn the nation back to as it was. What they meant was with slavery. With slavery. The sharpshooters were out that day, for the threats were everywhere. Lincoln would be abducted or assassinated. Plainclothesmen went through the crowds searching for Confederate sympathizers who might try to do just that. The crowd noticed how many soldiers were in the crowd that day compared to the first inaugural, but what struck them, I've read their letters and diaries, was the amputations. Soldiers, amputated arms, amputated legs. Civil War surgery was dominated by amputations. Let's remember that Lincoln is a 19th century person. I'm afraid those who want to take his name off of public schools in San Francisco and Chicago have forgotten that. He can't help us with climate change. He can't tell us what to do in Ukraine. But I'm telling you, his values, his values are for this nation. And for those who wish to follow Christ are values that we very much need today. The parade took place before the inaugural address in the 19th century, and one of the Washington newspapers had a little press in which they printed a newspaper and tossed it out to the crowd, and the headline said, this is the day that Lincoln should crow a bit. Lincoln should crow a bit. He'd been so criticized, they called it Mr. Lincoln's War. Wouldn't he crow a bit? Isn't that what we do when we've won a triumph? No, Lincoln was not about to crow a bit. What really I discovered to my surprise in reading those diaries and letters were that the people who came that day were angry, deeply angry. If you think about it, every one of them had lost a father, husband, son, brother, and they were angry at the South, and they wanted Lincoln to express their anger. But to their surprise, he expressed forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's begin. The first sentence, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. This is not exactly four score and seven years ago. What is Lincoln doing? Where is he going? May I suggest that he breaks every rule of modern politics. Every modern politician wants to tell us what he or she will do for us. Lincoln is going to tell his audience what he cannot will not, is not able to do for them. Line two, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Line 11, little that is new could be presented. Second line from the bottom of the first paragraph, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. What an unusual way to begin a presidential address. In the second paragraph, we do begin to get a sense of what is Lincoln's purpose. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. To the people who were angry, he is saying to them, the people of the South did not want this war any more than the people of the North. 
He uses inclusive language. Wouldn't that be wonderful in our politics today if we could use inclusive language? We all love America. We are all patriots. How refreshing. Lincoln uses inclusive language. He does not damn the South. He said all people did not want war. As he moves through, he says one more time, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. When I first started writing and speaking about the second inaugural, I was invited to speak to the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And as I was marching through this second paragraph, suddenly a hand went up. Oh my goodness, it was a professor of English. He said, but Dr. White, wouldn't you have to agree that Lincoln is blaming them, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive? Well, that took me aback. I had to think about that for a moment, but let me come at it this way. What if Lincoln would have said, but those Confederates, those traitors, those rebels, he would have raised the decibels that afternoon, but he did not want to do that. That's the kind of language we're using today about each other, if you're of one party about the other party. I think Lincoln very self-consciously wanted to lower the decibels by using the very generic, but one of them. So far, as a historian or a chronicler, he's telling the story of the war. And the direct object of the war is the Confederate side, the actors are the soldiers, the generals, he as commander-in-chief until he gets to the final sentence, the most remarkable sentence. Lincoln, in 701 words in this address, mentions God 14 times, quotes Scripture four times, invokes prayer three times. Of those 701 words, 505 are one syllable. Students are struggling to write essays for the SAT exam. And so people who grade the exam are kind of flummoxed. They don't know what to do. Students think if they write big words, that will be impressive. Lincoln loved what he called the Saxon Bible. It was the King James Bible, but he called it the Saxon Bible because it has strong one-syllable words. Shakespeare understood to use one-syllable words. And so this last sentence has just four one-syllable words of the second paragraph. And the war came. My guide that afternoon at the Air Force Academy was a Marine Corps captain. He told me that on one afternoon in Vietnam, he was wounded 38 times. They told him he could come home. He said, no, I will go back. He went on to become a military chaplain. And that appearance was just before the beginning of the war in Iraq. And he told me something that afternoon that I didn't fully understand at the time. He said, Ron, when the next war comes, we will be told by our political leaders and by the military that we will win this war very quickly because we are the greatest military nation in the world, and we are. But he said, don't believe it. The next war will spin out of our control, and it will go on and on and on, Iraq, on, Afghanistan, on. Lincoln understood this. The North thought they would win the war very quickly. They had the greatest military might, twice as many men in arms, a much greater industrial base. But now Lincoln inverts the sentence. The war is now the subject, not the object. 
and the war came. How do you think he said that? Well, he might have said it triumphantly, and the war came. I don't think he said it that way at all. I think he said it very softly, very mournfully. 750,000 dead, very sadly, and the war came. In the third paragraph, the long third paragraph, Lincoln is trying to understand the the meaning of this war. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. At the 150th commemoration of the Civil War that began in 2011, the Pew Charitable Trust put up out a survey to the American public. The central question was, what is the cause of the Civil War? And to their surprise, people couldn't answer. They didn't know. The persons 18 to 29 were the persons who got it mostly wrong. People didn't understand today that slavery was the cause of that war. It's not some other explanation. Read the secession documents. Lincoln is saying we all know that slavery is the cause of this war. And then in the middle of this paragraph, Lincoln makes a dramatic shift. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Inclusive language. A real jewel of my research to understand Lincoln was to go to the headquarters of the American Bible Society in New York and to pick up in my hands a Confederate Bible and a Union Bible. Usually the soldiers would write a life verse at the beginning of it. Often it had blood on it. Lincoln then begins his quotations of four different biblical verses. When I first started doing this, teaching a course at UCLA, my academic friends said, don't get too excited. Every inaugural address has biblical quotation. So I read the previous 18 addresses one time. Was there a quotation of the Bible? John Quincy Adams from the Psalms. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So Lincoln now says, it may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. What Lincoln understood and what you and I need to continually understand is the Bible is not just back there and then telling an ancient story of the 8th century B.C. or the 1st century. The Bible is here and now. Lincoln is saying these persons are learning their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. This is slavery. This is how the Bible speaks to us, not as an illustration, but as an indictment of who we are. But then Lincoln, who who I think often did not want to come across as a judgmental person, puts in one of those semicolons. We've dropped semicolons out of our language. He keeps them in. But let us judge not that we be not judged. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is the heart of his message. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. And then this declarative statement, the Almighty has his own purposes. A little brief biography. Lincoln was born in Kentucky, grew up in southern Indiana. His parents attended Baptist churches, part of the Second Great Awakening. For Lincoln, they were far too emotional. He rejected his parents' faith. 
We have had our children and our grandchildren reject our faith. He moves away from the Christian faith in New Salem, the little village he settled in in, in, uh, in Illinois. He writes a paper criticizing the Bible. A friend takes it out of his hand, rips it out of his hand, throws it in the fire. This is not a smart thing to do to criticize Orthodox Christianity if you want to be a politician. But then for Lincoln, as it does for all of us, life tumbles in. First, it is the death of Eddie, age three and a half, 1850. Then the death of Willie, 1862, at age 11. Lincoln now begins to attend the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. Phineas Gurley, the pastor of that church, is the unknown person in the Lincoln story. Number one in his class at Princeton Seminary. I've read his sermons in the Presbyterian Historical Society in Philadelphia. What did Lincoln hear? Oh, Lincoln had become at best a deist, if there's a God, kind of a watchmaker God, but not a God who acts in history. But Gurley preached providence. Providence, dear friends, is the belief in a loving God who loves you and me, who enters into history. And so the second inaugural address has nothing to do with deism. It has to do with a providential God. If we shall suppose, let's drop back one sentence, the prayers of both could not be answered, that of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has His own purposes. Lincoln has come to understand God does act in history. But then this surprising verse, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must be need that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. His audience, very biblically literate, understood he was preaching a Jeremiah, Jeremiah. This is what the Puritan preachers did in the third generation after the founders came to this country. For they watched how the children, and especially the grandchildren, were walking away from the Christian faith. And so they preached a Jeremiah, we have an, a, a, a plea against you, you have turned to materialism, all sorts of other things. So the audience wants to know, well, well what is the problem? What have we done? Lincoln answers. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through His appointed time, He now wills to remove, and that He gives, notice the action here of God, that He gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which believers in a living God always ascribe to Him. I love the way He speaks of God, a living God. Well, He's coming close to the end. We, do, we need to do so too. People are still arriving. He gets down and finally takes what has been a kind of a speculative story of the Civil War and makes it very personal. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, his audience had to think back, 250 years, oh my goodness, he's saying it began at the beginning of our country, until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. The lash is slavery, the sword is 750,000 dead. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
we come to the final paragraph, as someone said as we were greeting each other before the service, this is often the, the only paragraph that's put before students as they read about Abraham Lincoln. We need to understand the first paragraph, three paragraphs to understand the last. Lincoln is really doing here something quite remarkable. Frederick Douglass, the greatest African-American of the 19th century, was in the crowd that day, and he wrote in his diary, this was not a state paper, this was a sermon. Well, sermons then, Presbyterian now, have really two parts to them. The first part is the indicative. When Jessica or Tom Toole tell us recently from the Old Testament how God is at work with people in exile, or in the New Testament that in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, salvation is offered to us, that is the indicative. But in the end, there is what is called the imperative. Oh, it's done differently. Jessica does it differently than Tom. I've seen other ministers do it differently. When the minister steps forward and says, and therefore, this week you should live in greater what? Forgiveness, reconciliation, kindness. Let's propose that there's an unvoiced therefore before the final paragraph. With therefore, with malice toward none with charity for all. Why the therefore? Because God is with malice toward none. God in Jesus Christ is with charity for all. So may I suggest in the conclusion of this sermon that not I alone, but we together say the final paragraph. Oh, it was written in 1865, but I hope you see that it's also very applicable for 2022. We need Abraham Lincoln today more than ever. Let's say it together. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Amen. You have been listening to a production of San Marino Community Church. Find our worship services on YouTube or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify.